Hi again, everybody. This is Stuart Gandalf. Welcome to another podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing our Executive Creative Director, Dana Callow. Dana has extensive experience, many years of experience, uh, writing and creating campaigns for healthcare. And as we've been working together with some of our client projects, a lot of concepts come out and a lot of cool creative ideas come out constantly. And both of us are pretty philosophical about the current COVID pandemic. And Dana has lots of great insights about um, you know, how the creative strategy should change given that we're in this pandemic. So first of all, welcome, Dana. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yes, glad to have you. So Dana, before we get started, um, I could brag about you all day, but I'd like to have you brag about yourself a little. Just if you could give us, uh, our listeners, a sense of your background and how, you know, how that relates to today's topic, at least. Not the whole thing, obviously, but just kind of you know, where these insights are coming from. Sure. So um, as you well know, I'm an agency veteran. I've been in the agency world uh, marketing across a plethora of categories for 20 years. We'll just leave it at 20. Um, but I <laughs> have sure. spent a, a healthy portion of that time in the healthcare space in some way, shape or form. So whether it was working for health plans like Humana, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, um, or working for major hospital systems, even and, and little hospital systems everywhere from, you know, rural Missouri to cities like Chicago and Detroit, and then uh, a considerable amount of time working on pharmaceutical products. So uh, mostly, for the most part, uh, you know, products, drugs that are treating very rare diseases. So folks that are suffering from from things that are lifelong afflictions, debilitating. Um, you know, definitely. Uh, the kind that you're, you're talking about, mortality, you know, sooner versus later. Very good. So we were talking offline a little bit, and I remember it as Kubler-Ross, and uh, you've heard of it more as the cycle of grief. But the concept is, and this was innovated by Kubler-Ross, and there's various, um, I guess, interpretations of that and controversy or whatever, but I still remember, maybe it was in health class, but somewhere along the way in high school, the, this whole idea of people going through uh, a cycle of grief that's pretty predictable. And clearly it's a model, right? So not everybody goes through every stage. Some people go straight from the beginning to the end. But it's just a useful context as a place to start. And as we've talked about, you know, the COVID pandemic, there certainly is a lot of grief. And grief shows up in various fashions. So Dana, since you're such an expert and have used this model for your rare disease drugs so often, um, how about if you just give us a, a a quick overview, and then we can drill down into each of these cycles and what you see is happening today. Sure. So I started using this model years ago. I think the other um, benefit I have that, um, you know, I see it as a benefit, you know, a, a lot of times people go, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. But I also happen to be the caregiver of a child with special needs who's now 22. And in that journey, um, you know, I learned very clearly what the difference is between the common cycle of grief that we might go through for, you know, a, a broken dish or a fender bender um, versus, you know, a major health issue that impacts either you or a loved one or your entire family. So I've always applied the model to these very serious circumstances and it is phased. So, you know, it's shock and denial, followed by anger, depression and detachment, dialogue and bargaining, acceptance, and then returning to meaningful life. And when we talk about that in the rare disease space, 
Um, the point that I'm typically making is the nuances as it applies to a very serious health condition, and then the fact that it's typically cyclical. So when you're dealing with something uh, long term, you know there's there's uh, new developments in in that disease. Uh, there's new developments that affect you physically, mentally, financially. There's the impact on perhaps a family unit, et cetera. So um, you're constantly restarting the process or maybe overlapping processes on top of each other. Um, I've talked in the past about, you know, for for me and for lots of parents who are dealing with children that might, you know, have a, a serious condition, um, you go through it every so often, usually attached to developmental milestones that you realize they may never make or they might, you know, struggle, um, you know, quite a bit to make. So what's interesting about that as it relates to what we're doing now, and, you know, um, I thought about this the minute it started, is that we literally thrust everyone on the planet into a massive cycle of grief, an intense one that wasn't going to be easy for anyone to navigate. Um, so that was the first thought. But then secondly, now we're all navigating it differently based on who, we're, who we are as people, um, our own internal resiliency, our ability to cope, our thoughts and beliefs, all of those things uh, are coming into play. So what we might see as behavior on the outside from people really might not reflect where they're in that cycle. It's just a really complex but um, fascinating and important issue as we move forward. Totally makes sense. Now, in our recent webinar, I've, I was, I've talked about the research. I do that a lot in our webinars, and if you're one of our longtime blog readers, you'll know from the recent webinars we've talked about. And the research is very interesting. So when, if you, when you see uh, you know, photos of people in the Ozarks, you know, shoulder to shoulder, having a great big old party, there's a tendency to assume everybody is like that, right? And um, it's just the research shows that that's clearly not the case. Some people for sure believe that there's what pandemic? <laughs> there is no such thing. It's all uh, a mass media ploy. Um, to other people who are, um, you know, in very severe consequences. I've read, just read an article from a lady talking about, you know, it's how much it pains her when they talk about, oh, don't worry, it's just the people that have, you know, immunocompromised or old. And she said, you know, I'm in that target audience. I'm a little offended and I'm very, very scared. So people are, you know, all over the place in terms of how they're responding to uh, the various stages. But I'd like you, Dana, to take a few minutes and, uh, you know, maybe a couple minutes per each to drill down on sort of shock and denial, what that means and how you see um, that playing out, anger and the various phases, uh, just to kind of put meat on the bones. Because I think we're really what the key here is, is as you're writing and creating, and you can obviously expand on this more, you're the creative director, but how, you know, what do these things mean maybe? And then we'll come back and talk about, okay, how do you adapt your creative strategy to that? Sure. So... When you look at shock and denial, it, it's so funny. Um, you know, I was I was right there when they were showing the the spring breakers. Um, you know, and everyone was you know so offended and and just so upset with them. They were in shock and denial. So we might see it as ah, uh, you know, that's just that's bad behavior and that's a lack of empathy or care or concern or maturity. But really, for many of them, and I'm not saying all of them, because they're always, you know, the I before E except after C, but many of the people, even the folks out there, you know, protesting, I will not wear a mask and attaching it to whatever, you know, reason that they are, 
many of those folks are still in shock and denial. They haven't even truly, well, shock and denial and anger. They haven't even truly begun to process what might be our new normal, uh, the impact it might have on them. They'd rather just be mad and live in that place of this isn't happening. So I think that that's important as you start to talk to people or as a, as a physician or any kind of provider is really looking beyond what might be that outward reaction to understand where they are because that's going to affect the type of education and support that you provide to them that might even affect you know how you're looking at them um, you know from a, a, a treatment perspective it, seeing what thinking about what's underneath that that shock and and denial and anger is going to be important um, after that we move into depression and detachment looking around the world, looking around my sphere of people, looking at the folks in my family, the people I spend most of my time with, I think a lot of us are still here and could be here for a considerable amount of time based on the fact that we really have no answers to where this is going. Um, so many of us are there and you know we won't be able to move on until we figure out what normal is, whatever it, it might look like. Um, You've probably seen it, you know, you've seen people get quiet, you've uh, noticed people, maybe they're not talking about it as much or asking as many questions because they are, they're, they're, they're processing, they're processing and they're, they're trying to figure out new routines, they're trying to figure out how to adapt to this changing world. But one thing you can bet is there is a level of stress there that whether you can see it or not is something I think we'll have to consider as people start to um, go back to their regular healthcare routines and to their providers and start to address, you know, issues that they might be having. Um, you know, you might even have noticed it in that, you know, super happy cashier at the grocery store is not the same person that they used to be. That's someone who's probably living in the depression and detachment uh, piece of this. And then dialogue and bargaining. I mean, a lot of us are moving into this space or we've kind of got one foot in depression and detachment and one foot in dialogue and bargaining because our will to live, our will to move on, our will to find a new normal will drive us there even though we're still a little scared, a little stressed out, a little concerned. You know, we don't know what we don't know yet. Um, but a lot of us are starting to to, to move into that place where, okay, I want to talk about it. I'm going to start reaching back out to my, my healthcare providers, to my mentors, to my confidants, to people that, that, you know, maybe I've talked to a little bit, but I have been detached from, and, and I want to start to bounce ideas and, and things off of them. So I think, you know, be ready for those folks who are going to come in and they're going to have a lot of questions. Like if I think about, uh, and, and, you know, as a healthcare provider, no one healthcare provider is going to be able to answer all of those questions. But when we look at how um, most uh, physicians out there, they have a set of resources that they offer to people beyond, you know, what they do in the day to day, checking back into what those resources are, thinking about the places and spaces you can guide people. I think that's going to be really important. So feeding their desire to move into that next phase uh, that's going to be critical. And on the flip side of that, that's going to reduce their stress and then reduce potential complications for, for any conditions that they have now or, or may develop in the future. And then acceptance, um, 
You know, I think maybe there's a few like, uh, you know, just highly evolved humans out there who are stepping into this, but I think it's, it's fewer than we might expect. Even if you hear people who sound like they've accepted it, who ha are, are voicing a lot of like, this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to handle it. This is where it's going. Um, I think there's not a lot of those folks yet, but I am uh, very encouraged to see them stepping into that phase because I think that's where the leaders, you know, are, are going to come from. They're going to pave the way for others. Like as much as this has all been this very overwhelming place that we're, that we're living in, I think out of it is going to come so much innovation and so much progress um, because there's nothing like putting a, a wall, you know, in front of a, a motivated person. They will figure out how to get around it, over it, or through it. But I think those folks are few and far between. I do think, you know, no matter who you are, if you come in contact with someone like that, we need to embrace that. So they're probably not going to be uh, a huge, a huge problem for healthcare providers, other than um, they they will have read so many things and come to you with so many questions um, that you know are deep and and have a lot of dimension to them. Uh, so you know, being ready to have those conversations is what's just going to keep them in that healthy place of moving forward. And then returning to a meaningful life, I mean, I couch this as stay tuned for the next available operator. <laughs> I don't know that I believe anyone is is there yet, but I'd like to meet them. Um, but I think that that's, that's what we're all gonna, going to be trying to do for each other. Uh, and all of the folks who, who play in any one person's, you know, health and wellness um, ecosystem is going to be a very important part of that. Very good. You know, it's interesting because um, the idea of dialogue and bargaining, because I always heard the model as bargaining, but dialogue and bargaining is intriguing because, you know, and I think um, this model is useful because we go through different phases. The same person can go through different phases, right? They may generally be in dialogue and bargaining, but once in a while get into depression, anger, and back and forth. But I think the idea of being able to talk it out with friends, you know, we recently um, uh, met a friend in Palm Springs, and, you know, we have a vacation rental there, and we did our first social distancing, you know, friend visit. <laughs> and it was amazing to have, um, you know, that chance to just talk things through. And, you know, we haven't done that really. And it's not the same when you're doing it on uh, through Zoom. So I think that it's uh, really intriguing to know that these are out there. People are in, you know, general categories probably, you know, at any given moment, they may be staying in one and probably will go through this predictable product per um, uh, sequence, rather. Um, let me ask you, like, the, the key question is here um, from, you know, marketing standpoint, because, you know, neither of us, are, of course, therapists, but how does this impact our creative strategy? Like, that's the, the meat of this. Like, what can we do as marketing people and recognizing that we have a broad audience of people on our um, podcast, including, you know, super sophisticated marketers primarily, um, you know, at pharma or hospitals or wherever. But we also have, you know, private practice doctors and, you know, kind of everywhere all over the place. But just in general, if you were to give some advice on what your creative strategy should look like today and then, uh, well, today and then even as things start to continue to evolve, what would those kinds of things be? Yeah, so the way that it's strategy first, right? So we have had for many, many years some pretty accepted patient archetypes. 
Um, people behave in a particular way when it comes to their health care. And while those may have become more robust over time, I think now is the time for everyone to stop, whether it's with your internal marketing team uh, in conjunction with your agency, um, you know, just you yourself and, and, and your thoughts. It, it's time to sit down and think about, seriously think about your patient population, the segments in it and how they might have changed because that's what's going to impact how you might change your overarching strategy or simply your messaging. Um, Cause we have people who have taken, you know, um, quarantine so seriously. And then you have the people who I lovingly say, hashtag what virus um, and, and everything in between as far as how they're thinking about it. But then you also have how they behave as patients. Um, and that's where I coined the little term um, COVID resolutionists, because it's like when you make a New Year's resolution. And so many of us do that, whether we're super demonstrative about it or not is, is debatable. You know, some of us just have a list in our head. Some of us just have one. Some of us have a dozen. But there seems to be this thing every year where we we see the new year as a time to 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 change or or to attempt change. And I think that COVID is going to do that for a lot of a lot of people when it comes to their health care. And that's where I think the the idea of the cycle of grief next to how it will have actually changed people is how strategy must change. Um, so when you look at those, and I'll keep it really simple, when you look at those patient populations, you know, you've got your your people who are on top of their health and wellness, your type A personalities, you know, diet exercise, staying on top of, you know, as they age, doing all the right things to make sure they know what their underlying conditions might be. They are ahead of the cancer game. They are ahead of, you know, their eye health. They are on top of those things. They're just going to (laughs) get more on top of those things. And that's okay. (laughs) And that's okay. But then there's this giant group of people, and I definitely fall into probably one end of this one. Um, but there's this giant group of people. We do a lot of things, right? We don't do all the things, right? We try things with our diet and our exercise. Uh, we fall off the wagon. We know we need to get that colonoscopy, but we put it off until like, okay, now my, my mother gave me a hard time about it. My spouse is staring at me like it's time. You have a family history, what, whatever, go get it done. I think you're going to see a lot of those um, people who are pretty good about their health really stepping up to the plate and wanting to like check the boxes and do all the things, making that uh, easy for them, making that comfortable for them, um, encouraging them to pursue those things. I think that it's a great time to message around that for that group. Like, let's embrace, you know, the idea that I'm going to make a resolution to not let something like this scare me as much as it has ever again. Um, so, you know, get ready for, you know, that, that flood of folks who, who want to, they want to figure it out. They want to dot their I's and cross their T's. Um, and then you're still going to have that giant group of folks and, you know, they are the deniers and we all suffer from it. Um, that's why I say I'm on the edge of the previous group because I'm the worst when it comes to, <laughs> I take care of everybody else before I take care of myself, but that's a different kind of denial Um, Then when you look at people who know, you know, they know that they have 
uh, diagnosed conditions. They know there are life changes they should make, they should have made a long time ago. Um, they have been, you know, recently uh, connected to their mortality on a whole new level. And the interesting thing about this group, I think, is that we're going to have to um, approach them as if they kind of fall into two categories. So you're going to have the deniers who, yes, you know, I have severe diabetes, but I do not, uh, I have not addressed my diet and exercise, and I never plan to. But um, this connection I now have to my mortality, the connection that my family has been literally in my face about every day before COVID and now even more um, since COVID happened, all right, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to give it a shot. Um, and that's good news, but they're going to be terrible at it because <laughs> they always have been. So they're going to need a lot of support. A, messaging that that kind of assumes that there's some people in that camp. So targeting those folks with, if, if you weren't ready before, we hope you're ready now. Let's talk about, you know, whatever it is um, that, that we need to, let's, let's do it. So getting them to go ahead and act on that notion, and then they're gonna need a ton of support. So they're gonna need a ton of, um, you know, out of boys and out of girls and uh, all kinds of strategies and tactics to help them, you know, stay on the bus. But then you're still going to have um, a group of those deniers who head in the sand. Uh, you know, I won't, I won't go. I'm not. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna know that it's not going to come for me. Um, and that group is going to be really tough to reach, as as they always have been. But this might be the time for a proactive conversation. Healthcare providers could be a tipping point. So they are feeling it, their family, you could be that exclamation point on the sentence um, to help them go ahead and, and give it a shot. And then the group, I think, well, and one more thing on those folks, if they do just put their head in the sand, that doesn't mean that they're not uh, experiencing a lot of stress around it. And that stress can be toxic and actually, you know, exacerbate their situation, whatever it might be. And that might be something to message around as well. And then the worriers, they've never been more worried than they are now, <laughs> and that will continue. And again, I think, um, you know, very solid, uh, you know, pragmatic um, information and facts that help them address their fears and concerns uh, that make them feel comfortable and confident about seeing their healthcare provider, about pursuing, you know, whatever health issues they might have. Um, they're going to need confidence instilled in them. So I think that's an important messaging strategy with, strategy with those folks. But again, these are also folks who are going to possibly suffer from just a, a, a great amount of, of stress. So recognizing that and, and being able to have the conversation around that to make sure that that doesn't either aggravate an underlying condition they might not even know they have, or exacerbate one that they do, um, that's going to be important. So I think the gist is, um, you know, we, we sometimes we try to be very focused in our messaging, you know, one size fits all. I don't think that, I don't think that that's where we're going. I think targeted messaging, you know, that gets to these audiences where they are in this journey is going to be paramount.
Okay, and then the last question I have is um, pretty universal today. In fact, you and I have a conference call in, what, 23 minutes about this with a client. And the, I, the point is that a lot of providers on the provider side are reopening in stages. And some are, you know, wide open for business, others are not. And then there's a whole fear of, you know, what happens as the other shoe drops. And, you know, are we in the beginning, are we just in the continuation of the first phase? which, you know, a lot of people argue or, was, you know, is there a second wave and all those kinds of things. So that makes it very um, flux right now. But the idea of reopening, it, whether, you know, in this very uncertain environment where, just like I described, everything is changing. And, you know, looking at a different model with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, safety's way down there at the bottom. You know, basically self-survival and safety are at the core of this. So nobody's going anywhere if they don't feel safe. So, what are some of the communication strategies um, that providers might be thinking about now, um, you know, with all this that we just discussed in mind, but really about safety and reopening and how, do you have any tips on that for our audience? I think clearly communicating, you know, all that you are doing to provide a safe environment is important. Um, but, but I think combining that message with, you know, health, general health messages we don't, you're right, we, we don't know. If we're still in phase one, we don't know when a phase two might happen. We don't know any of those things. Um, so to some degree, all of this is, is quite the grand experiment uh, and a tough one. But I think just the very, you know, the utility of communicating, you know, this is what we're doing to keep you safe and healthy. I've seen a lot of good work done out there down to the, you know, this is the brand of, um, you know, disinfectant that we're using. This is what we're, you know, this is what we're doing. But coupling that with, you know, health and wellness messages that cater to your audience, whether you're a specialist or, or a, you know, a, a GP or, you know, a big hospital system with lots of offerings or a pharmaceutical product, wh whoever you are, combining that, that functional message uh, with, you know, that, com you know, common CS, we're, we're, you know, here for you, here to help you. Um, it's, you know, don't wait to tackle, you know, what, whatever might be happening in your, in your life with regard to your health and, and don't let your primary care go. But I think it's, it's a marriage of messages with where one doesn't necessarily take precedence. You know, that, that is a really important thought because, uh, you know, we've talked about this on a number of the webinars recently with research and so forth, but you know, this is an opportunity for thought leadership in your community. And, you know, some people are doing this better than others. And obviously some, you know, health systems are well-funded and other, you know, private practice may not be, or some pharmas are, have that as part of their mission. So that we, again, we have a very broad audience listening to our podcast, but thought leadership is such an important part of this. And everywhere I look, I read today on Fierce Healthcare, an article about how, um, you know, for a while there, or actually it was a different uh, publication, where the, um, you know, for a while their hospitals were just sort of thought of as these entities, faceless entities, and they did, the public was losing touch with them, and they didn't really understand any kind of, despite the hospital's point of view, that community of commitment. So nowadays there's a resurgence where, you know, certainly depending on where they're located, hospitals and, you know, healthcare providers are seeing a resurgence and I think this is a time to continue to stake thought leadership and figure out how you can be not, you know, the educator, you know, both sides of the brain, right, Dana, the right and left brain side. So yep. certainly the, 
the educator, the thought leader, and but also the compassionate people, the people that are really invested in the community. So as we wrap up here, I don't know if you have any additional thoughts on any of this stuff, Dana, because I think that's, um, you know, all these communication strategies are important and our audience may be looking for new insights on, you know, where do we even begin? Yeah, and I, for sh- I think you're, you're exactly right. And, you know, I think um, one of my favorite phrases is, you know, measure twice, cut once. So I think, you know, circling the wagons internally, no matter who you are, and having a very thoughtful and thorough conversation about your patient population, your geography, the mindsets of people and how your patient archetypes might have changed, and then a balanced message that plays off of both uh, right and left brain is is spot on. Not easy, but spot on. (laughs) Well, I think it's a terrific opportunity, a COVID resolutionist, right? It's a terrific opportunity and then you kind of alluded to this a little bit ago, rethinking your um, personas, but also rethinking your marketing and creative strategy and your messaging. Um, you know, we've been, uh, you know, from the very beginning, it's something I've been writing about is to take, you know, look at your marketing from a new. But I think that, okay, for a lot of people on the hospital side, at least, if they're just dealing with patients and reacting to a crisis, it's hard to think very strategically. But this is a good time now where, okay, we're past... Um, in most cases, obviously, it varies by where you are in the country, but most of us are past the sort of crisis phase. We have telehealth in place. We have providers, um, you know, in place largely. So who are we? What do we stand for? So I challenge our listeners to think about that because um, it's a terrific opportunity. And as, um, you know, some people and some organizations fall to the wayside, you know, others can really demonstrate and take a leadership position, not just from a business standpoint, but from a doing good standpoint. So thank you, Dana. It's been great having you. Um, As I predicted, this would be a great uh, podcast and you did great. And uh, thank you. Thank you.